Section 24 of History of Egypt, Chaldea, Syria, Babylonia, and Assyria, Volume 3, by Gaston Maspero. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter 2. The Temples and the Gods of Chaldea, Part 11. The supplications having been heard, water was brought to the gods for the necessary ablutions before a repast. Wash thy hands, cleanse thy hands, may the gods thy brothers wash their hands. From a clean dish eat a pure repast, from a clean cup drink pure water. The statue, from the rigidity of the material out of which it was carved, was at a loss how to profit by the exquisite things which had been lavished upon it. The difficulty was removed by the opening of its mouth at the moment of consecration, thus enabling it to take part of the good fare to its satisfaction. The banquet lasted a long time, and consisted of every delicacy which the culinary skill of the time could prepare. The courses consisted of dates, wheat and flour, honey, butter, various kinds of wines, and fruits, together with roast and boiled meats. In the most ancient times it would appear that even human sacrifices were offered, but this custom was obsolete except on rare occasions, and lambs, oxen, sometimes swine's flesh, formed the usual elements of the sacrifice. The god seized, as it arose from the altar, the unctuous smoke, and fed on it with a delight. When they had finished their repast, the supplication of a favor was adroitly added, to which they gave a favorable hearing. Services were frequent in the temples. There was one in the morning and another in the evening on ordinary days, in addition to those which private individuals might require at any hour of the day. The festivals assigned to the local god and his colleagues, together with the acts of praise in which the whole nation joined, such as that of the new year, required an abundance of extravagant sacrifices, in which the blood of the victims flowed like water. Days of sorrow and mourning alternated with these days of joy, during which the people and the magnates gave themselves up to severe fasting and acts of penitence. The Chaldeans had a lively sense of human frailty and of the risks entailed upon the sinner by disobedience to the gods. The dread of sinning haunted them during their whole life. They continually subjected the motives of their actions to a strict scrutiny, and once self-examination had revealed to them the shadow of an evil intent, they were accustomed to implore pardon for it in a humble manner. Lord, my sins are many, great are my misdeeds. O oh, my God, my sins are many, great my misdeeds. O oh, my Goddess, my sins are many, great my misdeeds. I have committed faults, and I knew them not. I have committed sin, and I knew it not. I have fed upon misdeeds, and I knew them not. I have walked in omissions, and I knew them not. The Lord, in the anger of his heart, he has stricken me. The God, in the wrath of his heart, has abandoned me. Ishtar is enraged against me, and has treated me harshly. I make an effort, and no one offers me a hand. I weep, and no one comes to me. I cry aloud, and no one hears me. I sink under affliction. I am overwhelmed. I can no longer raise up my head. I turn to my merciful God to call upon him, and I groan. Lord, reject not thy servant and if he is hurled into the roaring waters, stretch to him thy hand. The sins I have committed, have mercy upon them. The misdeeds I have committed, scatter them to the winds, and my numerous faults, tear them to pieces like a garment. Sin in the eyes of the Chaldean was not, as with us, an infirmity of the soul. It assaulted the body like an actual virus, and the fear of physical suffering or death engendered by it, inspired these complaints with a note of sincerity which cannot be mistaken. Every individual is placed, from the moment of his birth, under the protection of a god and goddess, 
of whom he is the servant, or rather the son, and whom he never addresses otherwise than as his god and his goddess. These deities accompany him night and day, not so much to protect him from visible dangers, as to guard him from the invisible beings which ceaselessly hover round him, and attack him on every side. If he is devout, piously disposed towards his divine patrons and the deities of his country, if he observes the prescribed rites, recites the prayers, performs the sacrifices, in a word, if he acts rightly, their aid is never lacking. They bestow upon him a numerous posterity, a happy old age, prolonged to the term fixed by fate, when he must resign himself to close his eyes forever to the light of day. If, on the contrary, he is wicked, violent, one whose word cannot be trusted, his God cuts him down like a reed, extirpates his race, shortens his days, delivers him over to demons who possess themselves of his body and afflict it with sicknesses before finally dispatching him. Penitence is of avail against the evil of sin, and serves to re-establish a right course of life, but its efficacy is not permanent, and the moment at last arrives in which death, getting the upper hand, carries its victim away. The Chaldeans had not such clear ideas as to what awaited them in the other world as the Egyptians possessed, whilst the tomb, the mummy, the perpetuity of the funeral revenues, and the safety of the double, were the engrossing subjects in Egypt, the Chaldean texts are almost entirely silent as to the condition of the soul, and the living seem to have had no further concern about the dead than to get rid of them as quickly and as completely as possible. They did not believe that everything was over at the last breath, but they did not on that account think that the fate of that which survived was indissolubly associated with the perishable part, and that the disembodied soul was either annihilated or survived, according as the flesh in which it was sustained was annihilated or survived in the tomb. The soul was doubtless not utterly unconcerned about the fate of the larva it had quitted. Its pains were intensified on being despoiled of its earthly case, if the latter were mutilated or left without sepulchre, a prey to the fowls of the air. This feeling, however, was not sufficiently developed to create a desire for escape from corruption entirely, and to cause a resort to the mummifying process of the Egyptians. The Chaldeans did not subject the body, therefore, to those injections, to those prolonged baths in preserving fluids, to that laborious swaddling which rendered it indestructible. Whilst the family wept and lamented, old women who exercised the sad function of mourners washed the dead body, perfumed it, clad it in its best apparel, painted its cheeks, blackened its eyelids, placed a collar on its neck, rings on its fingers, arranged its arms upon its breast, and stretched it on a bed, setting up at its head a little altar for the customary offerings of water, incense, and cakes. Evil spirits prowled incessantly around the dead bodies of the Chaldeans, either to feed upon them or to use them in their sorcery. Should they succeed in slipping into a corpse, from that moment it could be metamorphosed into a vampire, and return to the world to suck the blood of the living. The Chaldeans were therefore accustomed to invite by prayers beneficent genie and gods to watch over the dead. Two of these would take their invisible places at the head and foot of the bed, and wave their hands in the act of blessing. These were the vassals of Ea, and like their master were usually clad in fish skins. Others placed themselves in the sepulchre chamber, and stood ready to strike any one who dared to enter. These had human figures, or lions' heads joined to the bodies of men. Others, moreover, hovered over the house in order to drive off the spectres, who might endeavor to enter through the roof. During the last hours in which the dead body remained among its kindred, 
it reposed under the protection of a legion of gods. We must not expect to find on the plains of the Euphrates the rock-cut tombs, the mastabas or pyramids of Egypt. No mountain chain ran on either side of the river, formed of rock soft enough to be cut and hollowed easily into chambers or sepulchre halls, and at the same time sufficiently hard to prevent the tunnels, once cut, from falling in. The alluvial soil upon which the Chaldean cities were built, far from preserving the dead body, rapidly decomposed it under the influence of heat and moisture. Vaults constructed in it would soon be invaded by water in spite of masonry. Paintings and sculpture would soon be eaten away by neater, and the funereal furniture and the coffin quickly destroyed. The dwelling-house of the Chaldean dead could not, therefore, properly be called, as those of Egypt, an eternal house. It was constructed of dried or burnt brick, and its form varied much from the most ancient times. Sometimes it was a great vaulted chamber, the courses forming the roof being arranged corbel-wise, and contained the remains of one or two bodies walled up within it. At other times it consisted merely of an earthen jar, in which the corpse had been inserted in a bent-up posture, or was composed of two enormous cylindrical jars, which, when united and cemented with bitumen, formed a kind of barrel around the body. Other tombs are represented by wretched structures, sometimes oval and sometimes round in shape, placed upon a brick base and covered by a flat or domed roof. The interior was not of large dimensions, and to enter it was necessary to stoop to a creeping posture. The occupant of the smallest chambers was content to have with him his linen, his ornaments, some bronze arrowheads, and metal or clay vessels. Others contained furniture which, though not as complete as that found in Egyptian sepulchres, must have ministered to all the needs of the spirit. The body was stretched, fully clothed, upon a mat impregnated with bitumen, the head supported by a cushion or flat brick, the arms laid across the breast, and the shroud adjusted by bands to the loins and legs. Sometimes the corpse was placed on its left side, with the legs slightly bent, and the right hand extending over the left shoulder, was inserted into a vase, as if to convey the contents to the mouth. Clay jars and dishes, arranged around the body, contained the food and drink required for the dead man's daily fare, his favorite wine, dates, fish, fowl, game, and occasionally also a boar's head, and even stone representations of provisions, which, like those of Egypt, were lasting substitutes for the reality. The dead man required weapons also to enable him to protect his food store, and his lance, javelins, and baton of office were placed alongside him, together with the cylinder bearing his name, which he had employed as his seal in his lifetime. Beside the body of a woman or young girl was arranged an abundance of spare ornaments, flowers, scent bottles, combs, cosmetic pencils, and cakes of the black paste with which they were accustomed to paint the eyebrows and the edges of the eyelids. End of Part 24 Read by Professor Heather Mbambai For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org